contemplative, 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 contemplative podcast. Hello and welcome to the Contemplative Podcast with me, Matt Emery, and in this latest episode, I chat to the lovely Nanita Desai. Before we get into it, exciting news that the podcast is now also live and available by Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and all previous episodes featuring Sheila Shahabi, Rezina, Emily Levinade, Rouge, Luke Howard, James Heather, Simeon Walker, Michael Price, Katie Jackson, Europe Beving, Nico Kinsell, and Ava are all available to stream or download now. And for updates on the new podcast, please do subscribe and keep up to date with all the new podcasts when they're released. Okay, so back to this episode. It was a privilege to visit Nanita in her studio and have a chat about how she got into music and writing for a living, experimenting with sounds and instruments, her recent scores for the game Telling Lies, an award-winning documentary film for Sama, and lots more. You can hear music taken from her soundtracks, Untamed Romania, Telling Lies, and for Sama. And we start with her piece, A Chrysalis Awakens, from a score for Untamed Romania, which is out now. start with where did it all begin did you learn an instrument at school and um, what inspired you to be a composer hi Matt Hello. <laughs> um, okay so where did it all begin I yes I did learn musical instruments as a child I went to a Church of England school and I was very fortunate that I had free music lessons so I learned the piano and violin at primary school and when I worked my way up into secondary school, that carried on for a while. And at home, I was brought up as a, I'm a second generation British Asian, um, so in, British Indian. So I'm, uh, I was born and brought up in London, in southwest London. And I was brought up as a Hindu at home with my parents. Um, so I used to go to the temple on, I was forced to go to the temple on Sundays and go to church during the week on Wednesdays at school. So at home, I learnt the Indian classical sitar and tablas, which I really hated, actually. I hated, I hated playing the sitar because it was physically painful and my fingers used to bleed and they're steel strings so that just ripped my fingers to shreds yeah. but then when I got into secondary school I uh, I was just consumed by music and I would teach myself and learn to play all sorts of wonderful instruments like the guitar and and then obviously the violin and the piano I was in the school orchestra I wanted to be a singer when I was 10 and I wanted to be Barbara Streisand (laughs) (laughs) I really had a soft spot for musical theatre sort of Stephen Sondheim and those sort of old American classic songbooks and uh, I used to go to Foyle's 
bookshop in Charing Cross Road and I think on the fourth floor they had this amazing music department where I used to, when I was at university I used to squirrel myself up there for a couple of hours and go through because I couldn't afford the sheet music so I used to go up and study the sheet music <laughs> and, when I was up there and, uh, and then save up and buy sort of song books and things like that so I was immersed in I'd set up uh, sort of uh, rock bands, pop bands at school, I was in choirs, I was just totally consumed by music. But at the same time, I was I was a bit of a nerd, I was a bit academic, so I, I ended up doing a degree in mathematics oh, wow. because my parents said, you've got to have something to fall back on, you know. <laughs> and and, yeah. and, giving, and give, giving yourself a five, I gave myself a five-year plan, you know, once I finished um, uh, my university uh, education. So when I was very young, even as a child, um, when I was about seven or eight years old, I remember my my it was my mother actually. We used to go to the Harrods um, uh, record department every summer. They had a Harrods famous summer sale, and we used to go to the record department and uh, we used to buy sort of for fifty pence. We used to get these old vinyl castoffs of old. Uh, 1960s girl on the test card music and music from film scores yeah. uh, you know John Barry and Ennio Morricone and I still have these wonderful old vinyl records of these early uh, John Barry soundtracks and used to come home and put it religiously have this ceremony where we'd put it onto our Bang & Olufsen turntable and I used to watch the diamond tip go down on the vinyl <laughs> and and for the record to go round and round and I was forbidden from touching the record player. It was this really expensive special turntable and um, I just soaked up the sounds of the orchestra and the, and the Barry soundtracks and those lush strings and yeah. that distinctive, such a distinctive sort of compositional style that he had which is um, really interesting and um, and I just enjoyed the music and then of course Morricone's distinctive sound palettes yeah. for the good the bad and the ugly for a few dollars more and um, uh, I think it was by Barry's The Tamarind Seed which was a beautiful score that I loved at the time and then as I became a, became a teenager um, I was a poor teenager. I went used to go to the local libraries, and there was I think it was there was Putney or Wandsworth Library had a really good uh, soundtrack department, and I used to borrow all the soundtracks and then bring them home and bootleg them onto yeah. or copy them onto cassette, <laughs> and things like um, Trevor Horn's The Sea of Love and I mean just and lots and lot I just used to listen to a lot of soundtracks, yeah. but also a lot of you know the the top forty. I mean yeah, used to, I had a really wide range of. Uh, musical tastes yeah. um, but uh, but in related to film scores you know those were my early influences and I was always singing and it just I still sing all the time I'm a hummer 
which is incredibly infuriating to my for my family uh, and friends. And so, you know, if I'm watching a film or a, or a TV program. Uh, TV drama series I will start humming the music even <laughs> though I don't know what it is you know, and I'll start singing you're already composing I'm already you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was singing along in harmony or in <laughs> counterpoint and I thought oh I'd go to a major third yeah. day you know? and um, so uh, so I was always from the age of 10 or so improvising and just making up my own tunes and then as a teenager I built up started building up my own home recording studio yeah. so I bought my first Fostex X26 four tracker and I'd multi-track and then overdub and play guitar and had a Roland R8 drum machine and a Roland D70 synthesizer which was bigger and better than the D50 <laughs> and um, so that's the first synth that I ever bought yeah. but when I was at school about 13 14 years old we had a really good music department because they actually bought a VCS3 which costs about, what, 20 grand now, I think. And I said, oh, can I borrow this? And I borrowed it for two years and no one noticed oh <laughs> that God. it had disappeared. Well, they, I told them, yeah. but they didn't ask for it back because no one wanted it. So I didn't keep it, of course. I, when I left school, I took it back and said, there you go. Oh, we didn't realise that had gone, you know. Wow. And so I, I had on sort of permanent loan um, this amazing synthesizer, um, which I sort of just experimented with at home and played around with. So that got me into synths yeah. uh, from a very young, early early age. And then I bought the Roland D70, which was the pinnacle of digital synths. And um, so, uh, so yeah, so I built up this tiny little home studio and, and then I did a degree in maths. And I, uh, as part of my, this is really geeky, but as part of my thesis, I did the, um, I, I wrote a thesis on the, the wave equation and formed, formulated my own form of sound synthesis wow. uh, using FM, which was based the <laughs> Yamaha's um, uh, FM synthesis, yeah. you know, the DX7 and all of those synths. Um, so, so that was a great way for me to sort of get in on the, on the, the technical side of things. Um, but I also, when I was at university, I loved film and I took short courses in photography and uh, filmmaking, 16mm filmmaking, and I really loved film and I really loved music. And the power of those two things together was really, truly transformative yeah. for me. Um, I always loved... It, it was really storytelling that's that really piqued my interest and and as as I was growing up music and film were always a form of escapism yes. really you know that sort of tra the way that film can educate you and take you to places where you learn about other cultures and societies and periods of history that you'd not normally be able to experience in such a visceral raw sort of immediate way yeah and uh, so, and also an escapist, fan fantastical sort of fantasy way. Yeah. So um, I wanted to find a way of combining the two together, but I just didn't know how. And there were no courses at the time. There's no way like this is how you become a film composer. And to me, it wasn't. I didn't really realise that there was a job that I could, someone would pay me to to do. 
So I did a postgraduate course in music information technology at City University and there I um, was lucky enough to meet Peter Gabriel who came to the studios and I got introduced to him, uh, showed him uh, you know, some of the work that I was doing and he said, oh really interesting Nanita, why don't you look me up when you finish your course <laughs> and I said yeah sure okay <laughs> and um, uh, and of course I didn't do that I didn't look him up because I then got wrapped up in I got a scholarship to go to film school and study sound because I was always on the tech yeah. interested in the technical side of things so I, I went to the National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield and I studied sound and not music and I then went and worked as a freelance sound designer on feature films. So I was very lucky to get um, to work with Bernardo Bertolucci on Little Buddha and Werner Herzog on the films like The Burning Oil Fields of Kuwait and the way Herzog uses music in his... known for the way that he uses music in his films is really quite radical and off left, left of field, you know. Yeah. So that was a really, really great grounding in film sound. Yeah. And it's, you know, what I learned there still still helps me to what I do today. And then um, I did that for a couple of years and I just felt that it wasn't enough for me creatively. I really, really wanted to write music and I never lost sight of that focus. Yeah. I just sort of had a few detours here and there. And, uh, so amazing I, detours because you must have had such a great understanding of all sides of things. Yes. Bits of film and sound effects and, and yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and I'm, I'm working on a project at the moment which is just, uh, it's a dream project for me in many ways because it's a culmination of, uh, everything that I love about sound and music, it's um, it's a feature doc, uh, but it's a very immersive experimental film yeah. called The Reason I Jump, which is about non-verbal autism. And it's quite experimental and beautifully shot and very poetic. And it puts you into... Uh, autistic people perceive the world in a very different way, and they're very affected by sounds around them and their environment and so we're mixing we will be mixing in Dolby Atmos and uh, it's a real blend between sound design and music yes. so music design there's a lot of that involved as well and so I'm working using the human voice in a different way and it's really it's just a it's a really fun uh, experimental yeah. musical soundtrack where the music has an impact in getting across the narrative of the immersiveness and exper an experiential side of being autistic. Yes. This project, yes. Uh, putting water in. Was it a carnet? Was it? Yes, it was. Was that part of this? Because that's so interesting. Yeah, uh, it you was. You can see little bits of water coming out, and it's. Yeah. So no. I was going to ask you about yeah, it anyway to yeah. ask what that was, and do you get to experiment with instruments in this way much? Yes, absolutely. So. Because it is such. It was such a 
different sound. Obviously, it still sounds like a clarinet, but it doesn't at the same time. It's... It sounded like a didgeridoo, actually. Yeah. I didn't realise it, but a couple of people then contacted me and said, oh, you know, it's a, that's an interesting way to get a didgeridoo yeah. sound. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, do, I brought in Heather Roche, who's a really great clarinetist, and she's very much into multiphonics as well. She, did she know that you were going to put water in her clarinet before you... Were... Well, we both discussed ideas of what can we do to make the clarinet a little bit different yeah. and uh, and just, you know, uh, play around with it. And uh, and we tried it, something that she had tried before, yeah. and she suggested it. And it was fantastic, really, really amazing. Um, and uh, I had another session with uh, with a saxophonist, uh, Ben Vince, and we tried some really interesting sort of circular breathing techniques because yeah. um, I was quite inspired by uh, Colin Stetson's work. Amazing. Uh, which yeah, is truly amazing, yeah. So, um, so we're just trying to take... I've been trying to take instruments out of context cool. and um and and then sort of manipulate it afterwards in the in the computer cool. uh and and treat sounds and I've been doing a lot of that with the human voice uh because and you know you may as well use what you've got so I just use my own voice I was going to say you're recording yourself <laughs> yes yeah, so I've right. been recording myself and it's easy I'm there you know yeah. I don't have to pay a singer to yeah. come in uh I'm not the world's greatest singer but then but then at the same time I can just record myself yeah. and then harmonize and layer it and um, not just in a textual way, but I'm using a lot of um, uh, sort of stuttered uh, rhythmical vocals, which I then put through granular synthesis. Oh, wow. Um, sort of various granular synthesis plugins. Uh, I, I, I think, in fact, I think the, one of the first plugins I ever bought about 20 years ago was uh, made by GRM Tools. And I was really pleased to see recently that they made them available again for the updated versions. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I re, sort of, I updated them, yeah. and uh, I've been working with them again. And they're really sort of slightly uh, unusual and yeah. uh, real, real gems yeah. uh, to use. Very fitting, obviously. What you're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So this film, Reason I Jump, has just been a joy to work on. I've. Uh, been working on it for the last year actually it's wow. been quite a long long edit um and unlike most of my projects which are very normally my projects are quite fast yeah. uh, you know in, in terms of time span and duration and involvement worked in film for a while as as a sound designer and then I thought right I want to go back to what I really want to do which is to be a composer so I contacted Peter Gabriel and um, I got invited to go down to real world studios and uh, I got offered a job to be his assistant right. uh, music engineer so I did that for a while and that was a real eye-opener in terms of not just the technology um, but the way that he approaches writing music yeah. um, he's very uh, of the moment he wants to it's very important to him to capture the magic of performance and that's something that was instilled uh, 
when he was working with Daniel Lenoir and uh, and of course Daniel Lenoir has this great collaboration uh, with Brian Eno when they did yeah. quite a few albums together and they were all my sort of musical heroes really yeah. you know the way Lenoir works worked with U2 or the Neville Brothers or uh, you know Emmylou Harris and all these um, I was really interested in production at the time um, less so much in sort of musical content yeah. but more into the sound of these albums they were just and and Peter's whole process you know he'd spend years making an album and he was sort of notoriously famous for spending a long time producing an album and and you know with the engineering and the endless recording um recording and working with different musicians so that was a real insight and uh, incredible um sort of learning curve for me yeah and i met a music supervisor when i was there at Real World, uh, who said, oh, and Anita, I know you want to write the music for TV film. I'm supervising the music for a Channel 4 show. Would you like to write music for an episode? And up until that point, no one had paid me to write any any music at yeah. all. So I grabbed the opportunity, and um, it was baptism by fire. You know, I was working, staying up all day and all night, thinking, how do I synchronise music to picture and at the at that time I had low band pneumatics and big big tapes yeah. uh, synchronizing frame by frame um, using these machines and working in opcodes vision software so that went well and then the film company offered me another job and another job and then my network just grew from there really Amazing. and so over 20 years later that's I managed to make a living out of writing music for film. Yeah. And here we are. In and here studio. we are, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about your recent soundtrack for uh, Telling Lies. Yeah. Um, is it a different process compared to writing for TV and film? Were you just asked to write, given a brief and asked to write a lot of music or how, how, how does it work? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting process. Um, the, the big difference for me was being involved on the project for such a long period of time. I think from my first involvement in when the the developer director Sam Barlow got in touch with me, um, I was involved in it for about two and a half years. I think the writing process took a year and a half, on and off, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so that was that was unusual. That was something that I. Uh, took took a while for me to get my head around yeah. because normally when I'm working on a project, it's great to work in a very linear way. You yes. know, you know, you're you're on the job and you work on it for a month, three months, you know, four, five months, whatever, from start to finish, yeah. and that's it. Um, you're done. Uh, whereas with the game, it was a lot of there were a lot of pauses and st stop starts because of you know, various production things going on and development happening. Yeah. And um, so so that was an that was a challenge for me to get my head round because I because the way I work is I like to totally inhabit the project and, and get into the project in, in terms of a creative headspace. And then when you're sort of having to stop for a month or two and get out of it, you lose that momentum. Yeah. 
So, um, so it took me uh, every time I had to get back into the project. It took me two or three days to sort of get my head around. Yeah. Where am I? What am <laughs> I doing? You know. Um, so that was a challenge, but I loved it. I used that to my advantage because I would then come back to a theme, for example, and think, oh, what I wrote about three months earlier, I think I can improve on it. Yeah, as I say, because you've had time away, yes. it's kind of you're coming back to it fresh, and you're rather when you're in, I suppose, when once your head's in a project, sometimes it's very hard to see what needs doing because you're just listening to things round and round. That's so. right, yes, you can lose, uh, you get so into the detail, it's very difficult to see the wood from the trees. Yes. And... I could, I had the luxury and the privilege of being able to step back from the music and then come back to it later on. And that can be a dangerous thing sometimes (laughs) because it means you're never finishing something. But Sam was fantastic to work with because he would uh, say, okay, well, okay, if you want to have another go at that, feel free. I'm happy with it, but you know, you're, you're free to to do another um, another version if you want yeah. so I so I did that on a on a handful of occasions uh, and also what made me realize was that you know when you're writing a piece of music at if I'm writing a piece of music today I'm writing it around based on the mood that I'm in the time of day the time of year how I'm feeling about music today yes if I write that same, the same piece of music three months from now, I may, may produce something that's very different. Yeah. And I'll listen back at it and go, mm, actually, I'm not sure that this is the right approach to take. And so, so there, was a, there was a lot of that, yeah. um, which, was, which was a lovely um, sort of privilege to be able to do that. And also I'm a bit of, um, how can I say, a perfectionist, so that on this project, because I wasn't writing so many notes I wasn't writing so many minutes of music because I was commissioned uh, on a game. You're commissioned to write a certain number of minutes of music. That's how it's based. Whereas in film and TV, I will write as many number of minutes as are required for a film or or a TV series. Whereas in a game, I was commissioned to write, I think, 27 minutes of 26 minutes of music. I think I ended up writing 27. <laughs> um, so every minute, every second, every note had to count. Yes. And with the uh, with the game itself, it was a very um, there wasn't what the similarity between the game and the way I approached the music and normal films was was actually quite similar yeah. because with film my intention is to get to the emotional core of the story and the characters. And in this game, it was exactly the same because it's about, we have four main characters and everyone is lying to one another. Everyone is duplicitous. They're all deceiving one another. And so we worked out, we mapped out very early on that I would write a theme for each character. Yes. And in the same way that, for example, you know, when you have uh, an obituary and you have to write 150 words to sum up a whole human being's life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had to do that in the the musical form. So I had to write a piece of music that represented a whole person 
and all the different facets of their personality in just one theme. And each theme had to be five and a half minutes long. And the technical challenge with the game, which I don't normally have with film, mm. is that each five and a half minute piece of music had to be broken up into six or seven blocks. Okay. Like Lego blocks. Yeah. And each of those Lego blocks could then eventually be played in any order and mixed up. So you could have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or you could have A, G, C, E, D, B. And so when that happens within the context of the game, the piece of music has to sound like a linear flowing piece of I was music. Say, so everything has to connect no matter which yes. section. Okay, and that's one of the challenges of games music which is why you have chip music you know 8-bit music yeah. or you know game music which can be a victim of sounding a bit repetitive yeah. or, so there's or no massive key changes yes or anything, yeah <laughs> too... yeah so I couldn't one of my restrictions was I couldn't change tempo um, so that was forbidden and I couldn't really do any major harmonic changes uh, key changes yeah. um, I couldn't really modulate and I did modulate a couple of times I just couldn't bear it any longer yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I but I did do it within a block yes and I made sure that it goes back yes to get to the next section. yes exactly yeah. and so that's a way of tra um, tr a way of trying to get around the um, repetitiveness and also but we did want mu um Sam did want music that had repetitive structures, yes. you know, in this sort of modern minimalist uh, style. So that helped as well. Mm. And then, so as long uh, as well as the uh, the the blocks, the Lego block method, um, I had to write in layers. So that we worked out we'd have three layers per piece of music, like three stems. Yes. But they're not stems like library music, for example. There, um, each stem had to almost work as a standalone piece of music i thought yeah, you might say that yeah, yeah so that they basically yeah you've got three times the amount per track yes so it's just doubling the amount of time so yeah you're yeah. still getting the vibe but it's another slightly different taste exactly but still doing the same thing yeah you know? exactly yeah. so that for example when so in the context of the game you could play you could just well let me take a step back so we had uh, I wanted it to be raw acoustic organic sounding uh, in terms of the palette of sounds mm. because of the story and the concept of the game because at heart the the game is about these characters and these human personalities and getting into human psyche where everyone's deceiving one another and they all have these multiple uh, sort of duplicitous personalities yeah. so with every theme there were two layer two aspects there was the main loop which is the external representation of this uh, character and then you had a hidden loop that would be reveal a hidden loop in the music yeah. that would be revealed when the person when you were digging deeper into the game and you were seeing the other side of the this person's character coming through yeah. so um so that was a really interesting uh sort of aspect to write for and I and normally with my scores or any music that I write 
I'm always including all, all, a hybrid of all sorts of sounds, you know, yeah. electronics and acoustic and, and what have you. And here I just wanted to keep no electronics, no samples. I just wanted raw acoustic sounds because the um, what you're seeing are conversations. Um, because it's FMV, this is a live action game, this, yeah. there's no CGI or graphics, and you're seeing these really intimate conversations between people. And so that's fascinating, you know, you're, you're, you're being privy to conversations where you're not really meant to be there, yeah. and uh, you think, oh, this is all secret, hidden stuff. And um, so I wanted the music when i when the music was to be heard i wanted you to hear the relationship between the musician and their instrument it's a very human sounding a way. very human sounding and also very this sort of uh, gritty edgy raw visceral character to the music yeah. so it wasn't just getting together a bunch of session musicians or any orchestra you know I wrote it for the London Contemporary Orchestra and I had them in mind because they have a certain sensibility and, and, and a sound to their playing as opposed to any other band for yes. hire and they have this collaborative creative um, sensibility as well uh, so I would wanted to work with them for a long time and this was the perfect project I felt to bring them on board so we decided upon a lineup of 15 strings a couple of woodwinds uh, flute and clarinet and piano and harp so in terms of the layers the, the stems we had the piano and harp as a stem, we had the strings, and we had the woodwinds as a stem. Cool. So when I was writing the parts and I was doing my mock-ups um, on the computer yeah. using Logic and various sound li orchestral libraries, including Spitfire's London yes, LCO yeah, library, yeah. which did come in a little bit handy, yes. um, because when I spoke to Hugh from the LCO, he said, well, you know, it'd be useful to use that as well just to help uh, achieve that sound yeah. so so that was that that helped a lot but uh, when I was constructing and organizing the music on the computer I wrote you know I had to write it in certain layers in a very sort of strict technical format so when I'm writing normally I will write in a very chaotic way and you know you, I, I have to have a certain order in my studio you know even the messiness has yeah. a place yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that's where my maths background comes in yeah. because there's a lot of logic to the way I construct the music and it helped on this project a lot you know there's a there's this innate balance and equilibrium to a piece of music that has to be there whether it comes through sort of subconsciously when I'm when I'm writing and so I tend to be quite ordered and fairly tidy um, yeah. on my desktop you know every icon has to have a space it's a bit cluttered at the moment as you can see but yeah. but you know, every every folder yeah. on the desktop has to have a have its place <laughs> so that I can then allow for that creative chaos to go on yeah. in my mind um, and so that's how I wrote uh, this <laughs> how I wrote telling lies yeah
really interested to know one a like, tiny bit more about the film and two writing for something that is quite emotionally I don't know if draining is the word but it's a very emotional subject does that ever affect you in here watching it all day and writing music for it does that ever affect you mentally on a mental kind of yeah note? yes it does it does it was a very very difficult project to work for um, possibly one of the hardest uh, it's the most emotional one of the most uh, emotionally involving projects I mean yeah. I was in the the edit uh, the edit uh, the offline edit lasted for 18 months which is a very long period of time yeah. just for one for one film and I scored it three times uh, during that period because initially it was meant to be a one-hour documentary for Channel 4 and so I had scored it once already and then I scored it in the middle again with a totally different approach what happened was the uh, the initial brief was to write a very rich cinematic score uh, Hollywood-esque yes. kind of material and the director Ed Watts was handling the edit the offline edit uh, there were two directors and then Wad who filmed it and produced it she was involved in the edit uh, on and off and she would get rough cuts and sequences to watch and feedback on so I've never worked on a film where the main protagonist in the film itself is someone that I'm working with at the same time yeah. and 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 then on top of that to work on a subject matter that was so personal to her which it, it's really her life story yeah. being put up on screen so I really felt that responsibility on my shoulders um, it was weighed quite heavily on me yeah. to where I felt that I had to do justice to the film with my small contribution. Yeah. Um, so that so that was quite challenging and quite scary. But I didn't think about it, at, you know, at the time. Initially, uh, it just it got tougher and tougher as I went on along. Actually, so I wrote about over eighty themes, which were quite rich and and. Uh, had an influence of acoustics and electronics and so on. And then about uh, halfway through, uh, about three months in, uh, we had a pause in the edit and they had various viewings with the exec producers and external viewings and so on. And there was something that wasn't quite gelling, wasn't quite working with the film yeah. and nobody could quite put their finger on it. We just didn't know what it was. And it took, and you know, it it took a while for the film to find its voice, and it took a while for the music to find its voice as well. Yes. And so, th because we had, we all had to go on that journey, to you know, we had to go through the process of trial and error and experimentation to find out and to realize that this is not the right way, but this is the right way eventually. Yeah. And so, about three months in. Um, we, um, after various viewings, they realised that the voice of the film was really about the relationship between a mother and daughter and about what it means to be human because the film really is about humanity in all its guises 
about love and life and death against the this epic backdrop yeah. of the civil uh, the Syrian uprising and civil war if you like so when they realized that that was the true heart of the film about this the intimacy of this mother talking to her daughter and trying to explain to her and make her understand why they stayed in Syria so long and why they eventually had to leave against their will then the film changed tone and along with it the music and we because I'd been giving stems all along as well of yeah. all the themes we started stripping things back yeah. and you know it, it comes from my background as a sound designer I think and not being also learning to not being so precious about one's music yeah. that ultimately you have to serve the film and to tell the story in the most true and authentic way as possible and so we were just stripping the music back and sometimes it was heartbreaking to do that yes. yeah. <laughs> because you think as a composer you know you're often going oh I want I love that piece and you yeah, become attached to, to it attached, yes yeah. and you think but that works so well but at the same time you realize that it's not necessarily what's right for the film yeah. uh, th there's a scene in the film where there's a big chase not not a chase but they're they're escaping and there's a lot of tension yeah. and I had a really strong action pulsating piece of music driving it along and then when we stripped it back all we were left with was this drum beat this, this single sparse drum beat that was all you needed yeah. and it was and what was great about it was that because you have all the bombing and the shelling going on with all the sound effects yeah. um, the beat in the music the drum beat was echoing the the bombs that yeah. were going off and so that sometimes the music the score is at one with the soundscape I was going to say, does that make it a bigger impact because it yes. emphasises the big bangs yes. and, and the, the bombs going off that it almost yes. highlights yes. what's actually going yeah. on rather than, yeah. Yeah, and then the other thing was um, that was key uh, for the film was I brought in a Syrian violinist. I brought in a, um, who's a Syrian refugee and he's living, he lives in Italy and he plays the violin in this incredible way and it's very and for me that represented the aching heart of Aleppo um, because there's a visceral rawness to his playing it's not pure clean classical you know pure playing yeah. it's it has a, a grit to it that really represents and echoes the what was going on in Aleppo at the time so he uh played on a lot of the themes and then sometimes I'd just strip all the music away and we'd be left with a solo violin uh, yeah. sometimes so uh, so that really resonated with the team and also with Wad herself yeah. because she's not a filmmaker in the traditional sense so um, and because this is real uh, you know it's very realistic um, she uh, was averse to score a normal traditional score that would over manipulate the audience and yeah. there was and the story is so the scenes and the images and the stories are so powerful that 
having anything um, powerful musically would just actually detract away from it. Yeah. So yeah, I think that kind of almost making it not look as real yeah. as it is in some yes. way. Yes. Yeah. So the hardest challenge on the score really was to to show restraint and still get across uh, emotion yeah. uh, to supplement and enhance certain things. And also silence is very, very important where you don't have music. And that's the hardest thing. You know, I'm, you know, like I score so much for the American market yeah. where it's just wall to wall music and you're just, it just, it becomes, you know, you just, it loses impact. Yeah totally yeah so i think when you where you do choose to have music you know to me silence is music as well yeah so where you choose not to have music is is absolutely crucial and so it took us a really really long time to get to the end of the film and yeah. you know um at the end result um which i'm very very proud of you yeah. know even you know even if the music it, it's not a it's not a loud shouty score but there's detail and where there is music I try to make every note count and it's the same with telling lies you know there's a limited amount of music but when you do hear it um, there is a I'm very very particular about every note the dynamics of every note you know and, and, and so on that that goes into it because your biz your schedule is so busy every time I've spoken to you online you know it's kind of you've had so much going on do you get time to do much else or what do you like to do when Gosh, not doing music yeah well I love film yeah <laughs> um now I, I do like to travel uh and I do uh I've just come back from had a really intense year of traveling uh and the last few weeks I've been to Brazil uh which has been um incredibly nourishing uh, experience I was talking to women in music in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil someone's got to do it Matt <laughs> so uh, and then I was in LA speaking at LA Comic Con and uh, went to the World Soundtrack Awards awesome. in Ghent which was great fun um, so I, I do like to travel but with a purpose yes. you know? yeah. um, uh, and also I do like to uh, I do enjoy giving talks, and I've I've done a, the odd bit of guest lecturing. Mm. Uh, I find it it really 
helps inform what I do uh, by giving back to people. And I, I'm on the media committee at the Ivers Academy as well. So, you know, I sort of help put together events and, uh, and help uh, bring awareness to the wider world of the, com of the issues that are affecting composers yeah. on, a, on a business level. Uh, which is really important uh, with the changing landscape of how we're being affected with publishing and work for hire and all those boring subjects, you know, which are not boring at all, especially young composers or composers that are new to the industry really need help and advice on yeah. that. You know? yeah. so, so I do enjoy giving back like that. And um, what else do I do? Well, <laughs> I mean, music is, as you can see yeah. around the studio, music yeah. is my passion. And uh, I'm, all, yeah, I'm often on juries and uh, at film festivals. Uh, I was very lucky to be able to go to Cannes Film Festival this year with cool. For Summer, which, yeah. uh, which then ended up winning, which was amazing yeah. experience. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do enjoy going out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, going for walks, um, it's important to me. Going for walks and um, you know, working out and exercising just to get the blood flowing. Yeah, I think that's really important. But um, yeah, and and just sort of chilling with friends, really. Yeah, yeah. Do you get much time to listen to other people's music? Yeah, do you know, I don't. I love. I love listening to music, but I never get the time to listen to music just for fun. Yeah. And I, but I do listen to a lot of music for research from many, many different artists and styles. You know, I listen to, I listen to so much, but it always has a, there's always a reason for listening. Yeah. Um, so especially when I'm given temp music by directors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, for example, on the my current projects, uh, the reason I jump, for example, uh, I had early listening sessions with the director, and he was throwing some music at me. Um, there was one brief that he gave me but, but the problem with listening to music is that I'm a musical sponge so if I listen to something once or twice it will find its way into my writing which is a very dangerous thing yes, really dangerous. and I think in particularly particularly with this this new project I'm trying to bring myself to the score um, you know a lot of scores people want you to emulate or do a pastiche or or follow a certain style um, you know from such and such a composer you know can you do uh, you know a score like Thomas Newman or yeah. you know or Johan Johansson or, or Hans Zimmer you know can you emulate the music for this score or that score and and still bring something of yourself to it, so that's that's a that's a challenge um, which I've learned to to handle. Yeah. But then I really enjoy working on projects where I'm totally myself. So, for example, with Telling Lies, 
the director and I listen to a, we exchange a lot of playlists. Mm. We listen to a lot of modern uh, classical music, modern minimalism, but also film scores. I'm very visually inspired. So the 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 game is a political thriller, and it was inspired by so a lot of seventies, nineteen seventies spy movies, films like All the President's Men or Shame or Clute or Chinatown. And uh, the conversation, a conversation is that there's an amazing piano theme in, in that f- score. Is it David Shire, I think? I might have to look that one up. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the, this amazing theme by David Shire in the piano theme in the conversation. And it's haunted me all my life. It's funny how, you know, scores that I've listened to from a very, very young age have actually sort of Literally, they're like earworms that will appear in my mind every few months, yeah. and you know they've stayed with me through my whole life. And so I've done my own sort of homages, or I wouldn't say homage, but it's capturing the the essence and the vibe of those films, not the scores, yeah. but the actual films. So you know, it's like writing a score for a film that you've never seen, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So the music for Telling Lies was very much inspired by that, those kinds of modern, um, those noir scores, but never directly related to any particular composer or, or, or particular score. And, um, and with The Reason I Jump, which will be out early next year, that's, uh, that's totally unique to me, I like to think. But, you know, invariably people find their own references, yeah. and, you know, in, yeah. in what you do. Like, for example, with Untamed Romania, which came out recently, this big symphonic score that I wrote, um, someone heard it, and, uh, two people heard it, and they both independently said, oh, there are shades of Alan, Sin- Alan Silvestri in there. I think, really? I've never, <laughs> never even listened to it, yeah. you know. Um, so so it's interesting how people find comparisons. You know, all music is related, and it's very hard to be original these days. But I, but I listen to everything, you know. I listen to all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, then, and then try and find a way of getting away from it, you know, um, totally getting away from those references. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've already uh, touched on certain things that you're, you've got upcoming, but yeah, what, what, what else have you got coming up? I'm working on a... That you can talk about, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm working on a four-part series for Netflix called Bad Boy Billionaires. Uh, it may not end up as that title, who knows, but at the moment it's called Bad Boy <laughs> Billionaires, uh, which is quite dynamic and exciting, and it charts the uh, the scams that have surrounded some really famous billionaires. Um, so that'll be out next year at some point. I'm working on a really, really cool project at the moment called Fierce Queens, and it's for a new online streaming service called Quibi for uh, American-based streaming service 
um, and it, they're making high-end content, uh, drama and documentary yeah. for um, mobile phones. Oh, right. Uh, and each uh, show is 10 minutes long. So the series that I'm working on is a 15-part series, but each episode's 10 minutes long, and it's natural history. So each one, fo each film focuses on a different female species of the animal kingdom, and that's a lot of fun to work for. It sounds brilliant. Yeah. So I'm getting, uh, for example, I've, uh, the first few that I'm working on are one on spiders, one on uh, high, uh, two uh, cheetahs, these two sisters who are yeah. cheetahs, um, another one on honey ants and some fireflies and awesome. elephants and all sorts of creatures. And You're not afraid of spiders, are you? I am, but this has helped my me thing. overcome my... my one thing. I, I really, am. really can't stand I do, I do have slight arachnophobia, yeah. yeah so uh, watching it um, is... <laughs> watching it is fine, actually. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bit gruesome, but uh, because these female spiders end up maiming and killing um, the male spiders. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a lot of fun because they... Um, the brief is that I am banned from using the orchestra oh right so it's really fresh and exciting and contemporary yeah. so um we're making a literally making a story um a, a narrative story for each film and i'm very much involved in the actual narrative process oh, cool. uh, and, the, and the direction of it through telling the story through the music so even though we have a voiceover and uh, but there's there's a lot of music in it but We've come up with a musical concept for each, um, for each, uh, for each film, and so I've been listening to a lot of music. Um, in, in fact, uh, Cheetahs, for example, we've gone down the urban route. Yeah. So I've been listening to a lot of rap and grime <laughs> and, and urban street music, and um, and then writing score out of it. There's no vocals, yeah. but it's all instrumental. But using a lot of contemporary music. And then sometimes using contemporary tracks as temp tracks as well, which I will suggest to the mm. team. So we go backwards and forwards coming up with ideas for each section of, of the film. And then, um, so basically I write the music, um, some of the films I'm writing the music before seeing any visuals, which is quite challenging. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, what else am I doing? I'm working on a few series. Uh, I'm working on a lovely, just finished a really lovely series for Channel 4 called My Grandparents' War, uh, where we're, each episode, they've taken four of Britain's top actors. We've got Mark Rylance, Helena Bonham Carter, Christine Scott Thomas and Carrie Mulligan. And they're all individually exploring the roles that their grandparents took in the Second World War. Wow. And they've been travelling all over the world, from Japan to Dunkirk to Hong Kong to uh, around England. So that's been quite... Um, that's been a beautiful series yeah. to, to work on. Yeah. And, um, yeah, a few others, or a few other series uh, for BBC and, and Channel 4 and uh, America. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, and yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me.